my job has always been to exaggerate reality. And so, you know, when I did The World According to Ronald Reagan, I, I took him and, and, and some of the simple, more uh, simplistic ideas he had and, and just exaggerated him. With Trump, I wouldn't have to do anything. <laughs> That's David Horsey, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist. If you are a fan of David Horsey's work, you have found the right place on the dial. The entire show today will be dedicated to a recent conversation I had with David. As many of you know, David Horsey was an editorial cartoonist with the Seattle PI. Then he moved on to the L.A. Times between 2011 to 2018. He is now back in Seattle and an editorial cartoonist with the Seattle Times. He is a graduate of the University of Washington, and as a freshman, he became the editorial cartoonist for the student newspaper, The Daily. His first job was a reporter for the then Bellevue Journal American before moving on to the Seattle PI. I will start my interview with something that may surprise you about David Horsey. It certainly did me. Also, is Donald Trump an easy target to write about and do editorial cartoons about, or does he actually make his job more challenging? His answer to this question surprised me as well. What are his opinions about the country today and the media? All this and much, much more today. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. If you have any suggestions for topics, any comments on today's show, you can reach me at 206 206- 459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Back with my interview with David Horsey in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com, all one word. I had the opportunity to visit with David Horsey, Pulitzer Prize-winning David Horsey, actually two Pulitzer Prizes, for his cartoons that he's been doing for many, many years. I've actually been observing his great work since the 1980s. After a stint with the L.A. Times, he is back in Seattle, and I visited with him at the Seattle Times offices. A couple of years ago, David Horsey came over to Washington State University and was our guest speaker for the Edward R. Murrow Symposium. I want to start out the interview with something I learned about him that I was rather surprised to find out about him. And I'm pretty sure you will be too. And that is, he is a closet cowboy. So my first question was, when did this all start? It probably started when I was growing up as a kid watching uh, cowboy shows on TV endlessly, you know, Cheyenne and uh, Maverick and Ponder, you know, uh, whatever that was. Ponderosa. Bonanza? Bonanza. That was it. Ponderosa. <laughs> yeah, right. That's where they live, Ponderosa. And just that, you know, sort of playing as a kid, it just had this, this uh, the myth of the cowboy was always in my head. And over the years, every once in a while on a vacation somewhere, I'd ride a horse and I ended up going to a guest ranch in Montana uh, with a couple of friends, and it was they were pretty serious about riding. And I, 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 but actually, 
preceding that, you're going to get the long version here. <laughs> yeah, uh, preceding that, I was in L.A. Uh, visiting some friends who, this is before I was working there, quite a few years before, but my friend was taking uh, writing lessons, so I went with her uh, just, just on one of her lessons, and uh, at the end of it, the instructor said, you're, you're pretty good. And I said, I, I, I am. <laughs> I just did what you told me. And she said, well, most people don't do that. So I thought, huh, maybe I, I don't have a very uh, stellar athletic career. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not the most coordinated person. So I suddenly discovered the sort of physical activity that, that I could do. So then I went to this guest ranch where they were real serious about riding and teaching riding. And that was fun. But I had this myth in my head of, you know, the, 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 I wanted to really be out there just riding on my own or with some other guys and not in a line, not with an instructor. And um, Anyway, I, a friend of mine who worked at msnbc.com at, at that time uh, ran into her at the Ellensburg Rodeo and she was with some friends who were serious riders and this guy said, well, you ought to come to Montana with us. Because we got a group that goes over there every year and help we help this rancher, and, he, and so anyway, just I got into that, and it was this rancher who this twenty nine thousand acre ranch in eastern Montana just started inviting people to Is that come. Connie, Connie, okay, Connie, yeah, and so I've gone there year after year, and actually it reached a point where I actually knew what the heck I was doing. <laughs> um, and and you know could go out and move cattle and not fall off my horse most of the time and and I guess what was great about it is besides fulfilling the fantasy, well, well it made the fantasy into something else. I realized this is real life. People actually do this. People I don't know. People are totally different from everybody in Seattle in their daily lives. And this is really an interesting thing to put myself in a very different world and to you know get a little competency in it and 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 it's so utterly different from what I do day after day sitting around drawing cartoons that that was part of the appeal too I didn't you know when you're riding a horse and trying to move some cattle from here to there you don't think about anything else but that job and it it, it was exhausting but Kind of liberating. You were uh, said something in the book that he wrote or something about it. It's like what he said to you was when you're out in this big sky, literally yeah. country, yeah. that only a fool feels bigger than he should. <laughs> right. You, right. You put right. that in there, yeah. and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Did you have that feeling too out there? That oh, oh, definitely. It really kind of, and I, I think part of it uh, in my job. Certainly in Seattle, I've gained this notoriety, and in some circles, it's like a big deal to meet David Horsey. And out there, I was just another guy who could barely, you know, who was not definitely not the best at doing the things we were doing. And, and it was, it was, it. I, I kind of liked that. Just it was just me, whoever, right. you know. It was, it was just it was divorced from an identity associated with this career I've had. And well, that's, what's just, that's why yeah, it caught my yeah. eye when you told me about that yeah. a few years ago. I would have not have thought this would be a Davy, David Horsey type yeah. thing. All right, well, I'm going to switch subjects now. All right. Is that okay? And yeah. um, 
And that is, I want to start something, the map that you did in the 1980s with Reagan in America, and I think uh, we were like key freaks up here right. in the Northwest, and yeah, tree huggers, you know, and yeah. ecology, and we cared about water, and we're crazy. Yeah. And you've done some of those following that around the world. I don't know yeah. if I've seen any recent ones, but I'm going to ask you, if you were to visualize doing that today, what would it look like? Um, the world according to Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've had that thought because, you know, part of the, the, the reason I did it with Reagan was at the time, everyone, you know, his critics said he had, his view of the world was overly simplistic and kind of had all these narratives going on in his head. But Trump makes him look like a genius. <laughs> so if I were to do Trump, I mean, I wouldn't have to make stuff up. I mean, you know, and that's been the strange thing that in this, this current era, uh, you know, my job has always been to exaggerate reality. And so, you know, when I did The World According to Ronald Reagan, I, I took him and, and, and some of the simple, more uh, simplistic ideas he had and, ex and just exaggerated him. With Trump, I wouldn't have to do anything. I mean, if I drew... Uh, you know, his vision of China or Russia or, or uh, Saudi Arabia and sort of his worshipful view of these various dictators and tyrants around the world. It, you know, I wouldn't have to really make anything up. It would just be uh, just using his tweets as a, as a reference, probably. And, and the way he talks about you know, some parts of America, California is you know, sort of a foreign land and enemy territory. I mean, it, it would be very, I, sh I don't know why I haven't done that one yet, because it, uh, it, it would be simple well, you know, to do. Well, yeah, I'm just, maybe that's your block a little bit, because it's yeah. all out there. I mean, yeah, with yeah. Reagan, you were able to just simplify and break it down easy. Yeah. But um, my, when I talked about Trump uh, with some of the individuals, I, he's the most transparent president we've ever had. Yeah. And candidate. It's all out there. There's yeah. no like, yeah. there's no saying this Mueller report or whatever. Right, right, what are we right. going to find the smoking gun? There's no smoking gun. Yeah. He said everything. <laughs> he, you know, he's done. He right. said, Kobe, right. I he's fired just, him. He's just shooting the gun. Right. <laughs> he's doing it all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. how, it's a technique that is just stunningly effective. I, I just yeah. can't believe how he continues to get away with it. But less is more, more is less. He keeps firing and firing. Yeah. And I don't see any melting of his base, right. no matter what he does. And that's what's the sort of, I don't know how many times I've said during the campaign, oh, this is it, he's done now. Right. He's crossed that right. line right. now. We don't have to worry about Donald Trump anymore, especially yeah. with the McCain thing. I just like, oh, yeah. okay, that's yeah. it, he's done. Yeah, but you, you know, that was just the beginning. Right. Yeah, and I mean, he's gone after McCain since McCain passed away, so. Well, no, yeah. I saw him in your cartoon. Yeah. You were some garbage on his, Right, right. You know, it's great. Right. I mean, that that said it all. Well, I mean, it's I, whether by design or just <laughs> by how how he is. He, he discovered. I, it's 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 possible this could have happened before. He he discovered that all these um, uh, these things are that, that supposedly everyone will automatically respond to as negative or bad. It's simply not true. There, uh, 
that, and, and this may have increased because of the polarization of our media in particular, but he discovered that at least for a significant segment of people, they will forgive him anything as long as he, as long as they continue to believe he's their champion somehow. And um, so, yeah, all the norms really weren't that solid, I don't think. I don't know, maybe Nick, I don't know if Nixon could have done this. Maybe. Well, I heard that with Nixon, Fox News was around when Nixon was president, he probably would have survived. Oh, yeah, I, I think that's true. Yeah, I, I, it's uh, I, probably, yeah, comparing then and now, the huge difference is that, um, you know, we had three broadcast news stations, we had newspapers that were a dominant uh, source of information, and every Pretty much everybody got their information from those places. So there wasn't any argument about reality. The argument was about policy and about you know what to do <laughs> within the reality. Now it's you get a totally different version of the world if you watch Fox News uh, as opposed to reading the New York Times. And um, that I think that reinforces that human tendency to forgive your leader or your champion. Um, if you never hear the negative, or if, as he's been very successful at doing, the, the, any negative news is fake, a lie, if you want to buy into that, then yeah, he's bulletproof. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the things I refer to when I talk to certain, you know, audiences and things about it is I go back to like 2005, I think it was around that time, the University of Maryland yeah. did a poll of Americans in the country or whatever, and they asked seven questions, and the seven questions were like, it was right around after the invasion of Iraq, so it may have been 2003 or four. Yeah. in there, and they asked seven questions, and they said like, for example, um, was Saddam Hussein uh, involved in plotting 9-11? Were there Iraqis on the planes? Yeah. Were there weapons of mass destruction found? Seven, all blatantly, blatantly false. Right. Okay. And then they, the audience answered the question, and at the end of it, they would say, Where did you, where's your primary news source? If you answered six of those questions out of seven, saying they were all true, your primary news source was Fox. Yeah. And if they answered one, and just saying only one of them were true, it was like CBS, ABC, NBC. That's when I realized this country's in real trouble. Yeah. Just what you alluded to or actually said is that we're in different planets. I mean, yeah. this are out and out lies that people believe. I was against the war since day one or even before the lead up. Mm -hmm. However, if six out of those seven were true, I would have been for the war. Yeah, yeah. But they weren't. And, but it didn't matter anymore. I mean, that, that has been the revelation in the last few years that I, I, well, I used to think that if you presented the, a, a sound argument and a, a series of facts to people, they'd say, oh, yeah, okay, I was wrong. Um, that's true. And <laughs> unfortunately, that is not the case. I mean, that a lot of people, and maybe more of us than we like to admit, are much more interested in accepting whatever reinforces our personal biases or, or, or our sense of the world, um, then we are, we're, we're more likely to just go with that than we are to 
you know, bravely abandon an opinion because the facts uh, prove it wrong. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's made me question my, my job in some ways, and, or question how to do it. Because even within the context of a political cartoon, I'm trying to make an argument based on what I think is sound reasoning or verifiable facts, but um, I realize it doesn't work. And especially with a cartoon, I think. So it, it's like, what, am I, what is my job here? So now I just decided... So you're questioning that now like well, you never have before? Yeah, yeah. And, but in, and then I decided, well, I'm not sure I ever swayed anybody anyhow. So I just have to do what I do. Um, you know, I have this huge privilege of being able to put my view of, the, of politics in the world uh, out there, you know, three or four times a week and get paid to do it. And, uh, so you know, you're, you're known mainly more as, you know, cartoonist, I guess, right. political, but you also do a lot of writing along with your, uh, cartoons and things. Yeah. What's the difference in the process? I mean, your cartoons obviously get more play because you can look at it in two seconds. You know exactly what it is. And you're very talented at doing that. But then you accompany it at times with a column or something like that. Are you as proud of those, or how do you treat that differently, and, and how do you approach yeah. that? Well, it's a it's a good question. I because when at the PI, uh, you know, I was doing cartoons four and five times a week, and then would occasionally write something. Um, but when I got to the LA Times, I ended up doing a, a column with every cartoon. So. Um, in one sense, it, it, the process is the same. It all starts with there's some something in the news to to comment about, and uh, and and so I, I I try to gather as much information as I need to form a uh, what I hope is a smart opinion, and then um, you know decide what I want to say. But then there, there's a big difference between Going, taking that with a column and with a cartoon. With a cartoon, there is this leap um, that is the most challenging thing of my job. Where it's like, how do I say what I want to say um, in an image that people are going to understand? How do I whittle this down into the essence of what the issue is? And so that, that it's that's always the stopping point. It's like until I come up with that idea, I cannot go further. With a column. I found it actually much easier. It's like I know what I want to say. I think of the first sentence, and I just it goes. Um, and the more I did it, the better I was at that. Um, and I it, pairing them was sometimes it felt like well I don't need to say it again. Sometimes I'd like the cartoon better than the column. Sometimes the column better than the cartoon. Um, but it was a way to to take two approaches to it. One was the, the, the cartoon sort of dynamic and simple. And I, I always, you know, so I think the cartoons were often more opinionated than the columns were. Because I, in the column, I would sort of pull back and sort of be more analytical. But what I discovered was that people actually reacted more to the, the words than to the picture. I think 
I learned long ago that a political cartoon, even if someone disagrees with it, there's something sort of uh, subversive about it. You know, people still like the drawing or kind of like the humor or um, it, it, there's just a fun element that that sets it apart. You can really be blatant in the opinion, but because it's a cartoon, people give you more latitude. Say Maybe something. It's because we're over comic books or something. Yeah, or it's yeah. Or I know it's just like a that. different. Yeah, there's a different expectation. But I could write the same. You know, do the uh, the written version of whatever I said in the cartoon, and it would just really set people off. And that kind of surprised me because I've always thought. Well, cartoons are so you know hard hitting and they're really edgy, but uh, in terms of response from you know negative response from readers, it was it's the column that gets them. I would have thought opposite. Yeah, me too. That's interesting. But it was just yeah. So um, since I've been at the Seattle Times, I haven't actually I, don't, um, I haven't really written anything, um, mostly because. I'm lazy. No, it's just I, uh, that is not part of my deal here right. at this point. Okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, provide more free time in my life because <laughs> it was crazy doing. I was doing three columns and three cartoons a week, but they only oh, that's had, a lot. It was a lot. And yeah, so that's that, a lot. Wow. If I can just do cartoons for a while, I'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the fairness doctrine a little bit, just going along with that University of Maryland survey as to how we yeah. get to where we are now. And my feeling is that really the slow downhill march started with that elimination yeah. of that requiring networks to give balance. But of course, cable TV comes in, and I'm not sure they were required to adhere to that. But nonetheless, if they were, the FCC required that people give both sides of the issue. Right. And then as soon as they pulled that back, Rush Limbaugh started. And then, right. you know, all that started going. And now, of course, we have, what's his name, Alex Jones, just to be right. absolute right. over here. And I'm sure there's going to be somebody even worse than Alex Jones. That's the way it is. I feel a lot of the situation we're in now started with that. What do you think? No, I think that's exactly right. Um, and unfortunately, kind of only by a few years preceded it technological revolution of the internet. Um, but, yeah, it, it, I think that's what created Rush Limbaugh. Um, suddenly, because you didn't have to, you know, provide both sides or all sides, talk radio was born. And for whatever reason, it's worked a lot better for conservatives than for liberals. Right. I mean, people try, I mean, uh, um, Rachel Maddow actually got her start on what was it, Air America? Air America. Yeah. And, but and, and it, Al Franken was on. Yeah, and Al Franken yeah. and and uh, Al Gore has tried that. Anyway, it just apparently liberals don't listen to the radio, or or they already have NPR, or or, or anyway, for whatever reason, that turned out to be a great vehicle for conservative opinion, and and I I actually don't. I, I, I hesitate to even talk about it as conservative opinion. It's really right-wing crazy stuff. Uh, you know, I, I really respect real people I consider real conservatives like George Will and, um, and, and, and uh, most of the, you know, David Froome and others. Um, 
Because they come from an, an intelligent uh, set of arguments. But you know, Rush Limbaugh just blew it all open. It's like yeah. let's we're going to have right wing ideas, and we're going to push him, push our readers or, or our listeners uh, to the extreme. We want to make him up. We make, make them mad. We want to stir it up because that's what. I almost think like Rush Limbaugh, you know, would have been a liberal if he could have made millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. I don't think he yeah. cares because when he got in trouble, I watched him, he was on CBS Sunday morning, and I thought they went really easy on him. I can't remember who was interviewing him, but yeah. it was like, I'm just an entertainer. People right. shouldn't believe me. Yeah. I'm just doing this. He, he falls back on that when he yeah. gets into trouble. And if I'm a person who's listening to him regularly, I'd be insulted by that. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, these guys are buffoons is what he's saying. They're right. listening to what I'm saying. I'm just doing this for fun. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And and he, he has been, had, has been reasonably open about his own view of himself as an entertainer first. And Hannity started in the same sort of way. But it worked so well. And then Fox News came along and sort of created a, 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 a another format for these opinions. And then I, we still might have been okay, but I think the internet just suddenly it, it created a huge megaphone for the craziest people in the country, and they could find each other. You know, I think they were, they've always been there, but. You know, all these, I imagine them, you know, these sort of oddballs in their basement in their underwear, you know, typing on <laughs> keyboards, sending out horrible right. messages. But they used to all be alone. But now they are, they've, they've kind of been, they've become a, they're not mainstream, but they have become a big stream. That's Seattle's editorial cartoonist and columnist, David Horsey. Now, as I said in my introduction, I have been a big fan of David Horsey's work for, gosh, 40 years now. And I suggest if you want to see some of his great work over the years, all you need to do is Google David Horsey, and that's H-O-R-S-E-Y. And if you do, you will have a very compelling walk through Northwest, American, and world history. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. Why, thanks to David Horsey for sharing his wisdom and experience with us today. Today is June 11th. I went back and did a little history checking. What happened today, at least in this country? In 1963, President Kennedy said in a speech that segregation is wrong and it's time to act. Days later, he sent civil rights legislation to Congress. In 1993, Jurassic Park opened up and set a weekend record of over $500 million in ticket sales. And I'll leave you today with this quote. I don't believe in a law from preventing a man from getting rich. It would do more harm than good. So while we do not propose any war upon capitalism, we do wish to allow the humblest man an equal chance to get rich with everyone else. Abraham Lincoln. Have a great rest of the week.